This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. In my senior year at BC, I took a course called The Challenge of Justice. And in it, I read two books that have shaped my perspective of the world and my role in it. The first book is a book called Violence by Dr. James Gilligan. In that book, he describes the cycle of violence that takes place when we fail to intervene for children who experience trauma and how, as a result, years later, they are more likely to harm others. The second book was Dead Man Walking by Sister Helen Prejean. In that book, Sister Helen Prejean describes her experience ministering to people on death row. And through that experience, she makes two things clear. First, that we are all better than our worst acts. The second thing she made clear was that Dr. Gilligan was right. When we fail to repair harm, we perpetuate a cycle of violence. This week, we talked to Jody Kent-Levy, co-executive director for the Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth. After almost 20 years of experience working in youth justice, she's moved the needle for thousands of individuals that are currently and formerly incarcerated through advocacy, legal means, partnerships, outreach, and public education. Their organization literally changes lives. We could not be more excited to have her on. Your call to action this week is to call your local representative and find out how the state sentences youth and what makes the decisions around why they're sentenced as adults. Thank you very much for listening. I am Jody Kent-Levy. I'm the co-executive director of the Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth. We are an organization that works to end the practice of sentencing children to life in prison without parole and other extreme sentences. And in recent years, we've expanded our mission to include supporting those who are returning home, um, who were given extreme sentences as children. I was the first staff person hired by the campaign back in 2009. At that time, there were a handful of advocates around the country who had many of them been involved in, in working to end the juvenile death penalty and they realized that there was a need to create a coordinated national strategy to end life without parole for children which of course the US alone has as a as a sentencing practice and so they they raised money and worked with 
a whole range of, of different partners, including Brian Stevenson, Deb LaBelle, Bernadine Dorn, Allison Parker, a whole range of children's rights and human rights activists to create this sort of national strategy hub. And I was fortunate to be hired then and was um, at the time I had been working at the ACLU. I worked for the ACLU for a number of years on public policy issues related to criminal justice and prison conditions. Before that, I before I was doing policy work, I was in Los Angeles uh, monitoring the LA County jails for the ACLU, looking at prison conditions or jail conditions as it were there. And, you know, my heart got into you know, I got into all of that because after college, I had the opportunity to volunteer in the in the local juvenile halls in, in Los Angeles. And I got to come to know kids who were told they were worth nothing more than spending their lives in prison. And they were some of the best kids I knew. And I just couldn't stand the idea that this was something that we were doing as a, as a society, as a country. And it was all black and brown kids. And I just felt a real fire in my belly coming out of that experience to, to advocate for these kids and do whatever I could for my place in the world to, to advocate for them. I, I just want to say this because I think it's important that the, the world, because we are being listened to by the world now, that I am a former juvenile life myself. And when I was incarcerated at SCI Gratisville, we used to hear about Jody in the campaign and they wrote many of us and back then it was just a dream for us to even imagine being in the presence of somebody that was advocating for us. And that was in 2009 when we first heard that this group was formulating. And to me, those was like dark days, real dark days, because it was like at the time my mother has passed away. We was told we was never going to get out of jail. And here comes a beacon of light telling us we have a group now. And you can't imagine how that really gave me a lot of hope, like really a lot of hope to look forward. And we used to always say, you know what? We got some good people on our team. And we didn't know that. Mm-hmm. All we knew that we had a couple of cases that was leading up to the Simmons case. We had the Ropers case. And when we heard the Ropers case, it was almost like it don't apply to us, but sooner or later, they're going to address this issue. And knowing the work that you have put in and several other advocates across the country, I just want to say here on our show, thank you, because I deeply believe that we are today free because of the advocacy that y'all done. You know, it, it couldn't be no other way. And a lot of time we credit Brian Stevenson for it, and he deserved all that credit. He deserved all the credit. However, the people in the background that done the footwork never get mentioned. They never get mentioned. We always mention the the spotlight people, but we the people in the background, such as you, Eddie, Eric, I could go on and on. And I think that it's important that we mention in our show that the grassroots people are the ones that really push this issue. And they're still pushing it because we got states like Michigan and certain counties that just resentencing juveniles back to life. Yeah. You know, you mean to tell me that in that county no juvenile has been rehabilitated and all these brothers and sisters been incarcerated 20, 30, 40 years? That is impossible. We have the list mm-hmm. of all the juveniles that's been sentenced in Wayne County. They've yeah. all been resentenced to life. What are we as a community could do to assist in that mission in, in Michigan? 
I appreciate you saying that, and I I will certainly address your question about 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 Michigan. I do want to also just lift up the fact that when I was hired, the people uh, I mentioned the advocates who were organized and and who had worked on Roper and who had raised the money to launch the campaign, but I think the true uh, warriors who were really the ones who even brought this to the attention of the advocates were the families of the people serving. The mothers, the, the, the fathers, the brothers, the sisters, they were the ones from very early on that were saying, no way, you know, you're not going to let my kid die in prison. And they organized amongst themselves before there was any sort of infrastructure. I remember when I started, there was this long email list of families where they would just constantly be sending each other messages with updates about anything going on, whether it was a new Human Rights Watch report about their loved ones, or a bill being introduced, or you know, a news story. And they were the ones, they have been the ones consistently advocating for this population and were really the ones to bring it, bring the spotlight on it. And, and then that helped to, to bring the advocates in and, and bring Human Rights Watch in and Allison Parker, who did that first national report and Deb, that report in Michigan. So I really want to lift them up because I think, you know, when you speak to people who have been sort of quietly or not necessarily quietly, but haven't been in the spotlight the way some of the higher profile folks have been, it's the families who have been steadfast, tireless, and just absolutely relentless in their advocacy. And they are the ones who deserve credit, along with those of you on the inside. The fact that y'all held on, the fact that y'all were willing to hold on to hope, to just keep living every day or as many days as you could to really focus on the possibility of getting out, even when you were told there was none. That's truly the heroic work. And that's really what I feel so privileged to be proximate to and have been proximate to all these years is just those people who were you know, condemned to die in prison as children and their and their loved ones who've just not given up against all odds. Um, told time and again that they were worth nothing more than this death by incarceration, and they kept pressing on. In the United States of America, children who interact with the law are often treated in intensely cruel ways. In fact, the U.S. is the only country in the world known to sentence people under the age of 18 to life without the possibility of parole, or in other words, certain death in prison. In 2009, advocates working on youth justice reform set out to start an organization that would work exclusively to end the shameful, inhumane practice that disproportionately impacts children of color. I was the founder and director of the Children and Family Justice Center in Chicago. One of our projects was to abolish the juvenile death penalty, and it took six years. In 2005, the Supreme Court abolished the juvenile death penalty in a really wonderful landmark divided uh, decision that Justice Kennedy wrote, uh, Roper versus Simmons. And it uh, has some of the most lyrical language um, about children and how children are different than adults, which was a theme we were trying to promote <laughs> and remind people that everybody lived that way in their own lives and in their own families. but. Uh, when it came to the law, our harshness was unlimited regarding uh, teenagers and youngsters. In Michigan, you know, I think the truth is that we need to get some legislation passed there. I think the truth is that, like you said, in, in one county, you see sentences being 
you know, life sentences being handed down at, at resentencing. In other counties, we have prosecutors who aren't even seeking life without parole again at resentencing. And so what we see nationally, and, and Michigan's sort of a microcosm of it, is that is that we're, we have justice by geography instead of based on uh, an individual's ability to be rehabilitated or an individual's role in the crime or the, the age at the time of, of these individual's offenses. So that's one of the issues that has to be addressed. It's part of the reason we have to ban life without parole and other extreme sentences for children outright, because as long as these sentences continue to exist, we will continue to see these arbitrary impositions of the sentence. And I think one of the things that's absolutely essential to, to lift up here is the factor that is increasingly discussed, but is so blatant if you're, if you're looking closely at this is race. And you know, looking at the fact that we have had an increase in racial disparities since the Miller v. Alabama decision in 2012, right? So as judges have more discretion, to impose these sentences, we're seeing an increase in racial disparities. So as long as these sentences exist, it's gonna be black and brown kids who get these extreme penalties, especially when victims are white. And um, so we need to see a ban on these sentences altogether. And, and Michigan is long overdue for some meaningful legislation to get that, to get that resolved. I'm heartened to say that we have seen tremendous momentum um, across the country to ban life without parole for children. In 2012, when Miller came down, there were only five states that banned life without parole for children. Today, that's 24 states plus D.C. And, you know, knock on wood, but we're really close in Maryland. And hopefully by the time this, this podcast airs, we'll be able to include Maryland in that list. Yes. Um, what we would like to do, and I tell all the guests, if you have any information that you think we could disseminate in our through our channels, we platform, we on Crowdspace, Apple, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcast, um, just send it to us because we focusing deeply in Michigan. Uh, a good portion of our sh first season is, is in Michigan. And the reason for that is because not only do we know people in Michigan, I, we just feel that Michigan is out of pocket with what they're doing. Yes. And it's almost the same thing what Philadelphia is doing. Yes, Philadelphia is releasing those juvenile lifers that's been 30, 40 years in. However, they're keeping them on parole for life, which is another form of incarceration. And that's something that we've been trying to fight. That's something that we are fighting for. And in Philadelphia, a lot of us, due to the investigative report that we've done in the Suave podcast, we discovered some evidence that the police held back like physically statements, somebody else, identifying somebody else as the shooter, which is something I always say, but I couldn't yeah. prove it. So now we having a discussion with the district attorney's office, like, what can we do? Mm. You know, you, you parade yourself to be this progressive guy. What can we do? Here's the evidence. Your department has the evidence. And you know, and it's this type of behavior that we trying to address. And by no means I'm advocating that I'm innocent. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. All I'm saying is I wasn't the one that pulled the trigger. Like you mm -hmm. said, I did. And y'all knew this 30 years ago. And if this evidence would have been presented to my lawyer in court, maybe the result would have been different. Absolutely. And it's this type of behavior that we're trying to address. And it's only because of organizations like ICANN that we are able right now to get into different places that would give us information. 
You know, when we say, oh, yeah, I know, Jody. Oh, okay, here's the information to the list in Michigan. It's that easy now. I always tell Kevin and I always tell the people, right, that juvenile lifers are not out here looking for a handout. We are involved in local communities on a national level. We even got people working in the district attorney's office in Philadelphia now. Mm-hmm. You know, we got people working in different um, aspects in the community that people would never imagine. We contributing. We are contributing to society. So why should we in Philadelphia be on paper for life? So my question is, do you think that a juvenile that's been in prison 30, 40 years deserves to be on parole for life? Do you think that supervision is needed? Absolutely not. I mean, I think the truth is that with the folks the juvenile lifers who've gotten released, I mean, I think it's important to reflect on what it took to to get there. These are kids, as you know, who experienced all sorts of trauma before they were involved in, in their crimes. People, kids, frankly, that we failed long before they committed any harm. I'm sorry for my actions. I have been going through lots of things during that month. Every night I have cried for all the pain I have caused throughout the whole process. If I could go back, I would stop myself. I now realize the nightmare that you and I have to live with. I don't show any emotion because if I do, I will not stop crying. After the day I was convicted, I did not know how to handle it. All I did was tell myself it was all over and I could never live a normal life. People think I'm crazy, but they don't know what. They do not know me. If I could go back, I would take all the pain and stress rather than take a life. And I really don't understand none of this. I just try to, but I really don't and do not like what I did, and neither do you. And I know what I did was wrong. And when I get older, I will help kids not to make the mistake I made and help them become a better person in life so they, so they will not have to suffer the abuse I had to suffer on that day. I was so scared. I was afraid. I was afraid of my stepfather. I wanted to die because I thought there was no way out. I'm sorry for what I did. I just wanted to. I just wanted you to know that. They committed their crimes as kids. They were thrown into an adult system. They were told they no longer had the protections of childhood and those that come with that. They were given lawyers, oftentimes, who had no training in representing children and put into an adult system where they were particularly susceptible to victimization and abuse. They navigated those conditions. They were barred from all sorts of programs in in prison because of the nature of their sentence. The fact that they had a life sentence meant that they were barred from any number of programs. So they created their own, right? Like y'all were in there creating your own programming to better yourselves long before Miller uh, and Montgomery came down, right? It was about the, the character of these individuals, the fact that you all had the resolve to take a situation that was incredibly barbaric and abusive and to create something really positive and and see opportunities. I know all of y'all were in there mentoring younger prisoners as they came in. And it, it, it wasn't always formal programming, but the fact that was where you all put your focus speaks to just your incredible resilience and and courage and your character. And so by the time Miller and Montgomery came down, you know, let's be clear that we were being fought tooth and nail every step of the way to keep y'all in prison, right? People were fighting. When I started the DAs, there were victims groups. I mean, everybody was calling y'all monsters. And that comes from a long history of that, you know, in our country, which we can speak to later. But 
none of these judges and parole boards had a particular interest in letting you out, right? right. From a political standpoint, they didn't gain anything uh, given the public pressure from the sort of law and order community to free you guys. So the fact that you all proved you were worthy of that second chance or first chance in in, in many cases, most cases. I say first chance because we never had uh, exactly. a, a, a chance. Exactly. The fact that you were able to prove that and convince these stakeholders that you that they should look at who you were, not just at your crime, which is the easier thing for them to do, for them to be able to look at you, who you were and say, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to take this risk. I'm going to free you. I mean, that in and of itself demonstrates the kind of people we're talking about. The idea that they need to be on lifetime supervision is absurd. It's another form of social control that has been deeply problematic. Again, just like we see the arbitrary nature of people imposing these sentences or seeking these sentences, parole uh, officers are going to have a whole range of all sorts of power to monitor these individuals and to send them back to prison. As we saw in your case, there's very little oversight. There's very little accountability. As a result, these folks who've <laughs> done all this time and are you know, grateful to be free are now under the thumb of yet another system that is, is incredibly arbitrary and in terms of how it's implemented and, and really limits your ability to be free and to live as free human beings as you deserve to. You know, I always tell people, are we really free? Because if I don't pay my parole fees, I get violated. And the uh, ironic thing is, um, um, Jody, that now I get phone calls from parole officers down there every day because mm-hmm. they're always calling me for guys that need treatment, for guys that need jobs. And I, you know, I wonder to myself sometimes, like, is this... They is should I'm be doing, paying you. Is they I'm should doing, be paying you. <laughs> right. So I yeah. ask myself, is I'm doing the right thing? by assisting parole and helping guys get jobs and therapy and getting different resources because I just feel that that's their job. Your job is to have a list of resources so when guys come home, they have the proper treatment and there is no treatment. You know, I remember coming home, the only organization that ever reached out to me and asked me, are you all right physically? Are you all right mentally? Which I can't. I remember Eric, Eddie, Dual Latif, they ran down on me when I was working in North Philly and I was like, okay, what I do? Three, three <laughs> brothers coming from D.C. I'm like, they're like, now nah, we're here to make sure that you are all right. You know, that was my first encounter with them. And to me, that left a lasting impression because I'm like, wow, here these people from D.C. coming all the way to Philadelphia just to make sure that my mental state was all right. And I remember when I went back, the only organization that ever reached out and said, are you all right? What can we do? It wasn't like, we don't know, we have doubts. You never asked that. It was about, what can you do? Are you physically all right? We're here for you. And I think their parole should have that in place, but they Mm -hmm. don't. So Mm -hmm. I ask myself sometimes, is I'm doing the right thing by assisting them? Because I want to help the brothers, because I know how hard it is out here to even get a job, to even get some therapy and or, or a psych evaluation for whatever else you needed. But I wonder, am I doing the right thing by assisting them? Because I feel like I'm assisting the same oppressor 
that's keeping me down. This is how mm-hmm. I feel sometimes. But then I feel like I'm obligated to the brothers and sisters that need this help. Yeah, no. That's- and I still haven't come up with that answer. I don't know if I'm doing the right thing or not. I really don't. And I'm conflicted with that sometimes. Because I'm like, if I don't help, this brother might be going back to jail. Because mm-hmm. in Philadelphia, if you don't have a psych evaluation in your file, that could be a, a violation. They give you a certain mm-hmm. amount of time. And to get a psych evaluation in Philadelphia, you got to have insurance. You got to have some type of Medicaid. I mean, you got it's a process. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I really believe that the, the group of folks, especially there in Philly, who came home and who've been home for a number of years now, have a level of expertise in order to do their jobs well. I mean, y'all navigated all these systems. You know the flaws, the pitfalls. I mean, you know the gaps. What is set up to help you succeed and what is set up to help you to make you fail, right? And the truth is that the parole board should want you to succeed because they're the ones who let you out. And so they have an interest in seeing y'all do well which, which is why they're calling you, <laughs> because they want to make sure that the people who have experienced it in a position to be able to inform what's needed. And, and that makes a lot of sense. Y'all are the experts in this. And, yet, and they should be paying you to be able to offer the kind of expertise that you bring. And maybe it's part, I think, Suave, the, the, your question's a good one. I think it's both and. I think you can assist there and work to reform it and work to create a, a better system because the truth is that's what we need. And in the meantime, you've got folks coming home who need that assistance so they don't go back to prison. I understand the conflict there, but I think, you know, we have to be able to do both. It's similar to this idea that this notion of we keep us safe, right? That, that, this idea of in, in resisting this notion that we need more police in the streets to, to deal with violence you know, when you talk to folks in the community, they're like, well, we know how to address these issues of this public health crisis that we have in our community. It needs a public health response. The same thing is true when you talk about folks coming home. I can, which has just been this incredible network of people across the country who were condemned to die in prison, many of them as children, know what people need when they come home because they've been through it. And so the idea that that was the space where you found support, so, you know, that it it just, of course it is, because those are people who care deeply about others like you who have had this horrible experience, who are coming home to very little in terms of support. And that community that has, has formed within ICANN is just really this beautiful space that I know a lot of people have found the most meaningful support as they come home because it's like these folks are in it together and they y'all know what is needed to to keep going and sometimes you know it's just about lifting each other up and knowing that you've got brothers and sisters who've been through it and who are going through it uh, right alongside you you know i think that that i can offer the family that we lost while incarcerated because a lot of people don't understand that when you are incarcerated for decades people die off family you know, they got their own life. You can't blame them. They move on. And, and you just feel like I'm forgotten about. Mm. And even when you come home, you try to reconnect with your biological family. It don't work most of the time because they don't know you and you don't know them. So we always gravitate towards the people that could relate to us. And to me, it's like I can. I could pick up the phone two o'clock in the morning. I've done it and just call mm. Eddie. Yo, Eddie, what's going on? I, I, I'm having some doubts about this or I need some help with this. And every member we call for ICANN, 
never say, I can't talk to you right now. It's always, what's going on? What can we help? And if they don't have the answer, it's always, I know somebody that could call this person Mm -hmm. here. You know, so to me, that's what's needed. But I don't see accountability. I don't see nobody holding the stakes in cities like Philadelphia accountable for the lack of resources when they campaigning and collecting all these grant money um, city agencies um, for to help juvenile lifers come home. But when they come home, it's always, I'm going to give you a referral here, and then I'm going to give you another referral here. By the time you give me the third referral, my bus pass ran out, so I can't make it because I yeah. don't have the money to travel in the city. I don't have a car. So now I feel like I'm left out. Now I feel pressure because mm-hmm. if I don't have my supervision fees, parole going to violate me. And more than often, you see guys making decisions that they shouldn't be making. And not because they want to, it's because they feel pressure that if I don't have a job, parole gonna violate me. So I'm gonna go hustle. I seen that happen. You know, I work in North Philly, in the heart of everything that's going on in this city. And I see guys and I tell the guys, yo, you sure you wanna do this? And like, man, look, if I don't pay my fees, I go to jail, I'll take my chances. And, and I ask myself, damn, who do we hold accountable? Or what can the community do to make sure that some accountability is applied to these agencies. What can we do as a community to ensure that we can hold parole, city agencies, job agencies that's supposed to go uh, follow the policies, the band the box policies, but they don't? What can we do as a community to apply accountability to them agencies? For the past 20 years, I've been working in the apparel industry, sourcing, buying, and printing t-shirts for my clients. The one brand I return to every time is Bella Canvas. They cover all the bases, style, sustainability, color selection, and wearability. These really are the softest shirts available. The best news is they cut their fabric in Los Angeles. And for any of us that know the apparel industry, we know what a big deal this is. Whether you're looking for t-shirts, sweatshirts, joggers, tanks, or long sleeves, Bella Canvas really does have you covered. The best news is that Bella Canvas now has a retail line, available at shop.bellacanvas.com, where you can find more information about this amazing company and discover online exclusives. Use the code DBI2021 at checkout to receive 20% off your first order. Limit one per customer. Bella Canvas really did fuel the t-shirt movement. Be different. Be Bella Canvas. Checker, a longtime partner of my company, Social Imprints, is a sponsor of this podcast. Checker is a fair chance employer and the leading technology company in the background check industry. They're building a fairer future through technology that balances trust, safety, and fairness. A past record should not be a barrier to the pursuit of life and professional successes. Checker helps companies and candidates achieve their goals with products like Assess, Candidate Stories, and help with candidate expungements, among others. To learn more about Checker, these expungement services, or how to become a fair chance employer, go to Checker at checker.com. Thank you, Checker. I mean, I think there's any number of things. I think there are needs for civilian oversight boards of all these different programs that y'all should be paid to sit on. (laughs) I really believe that, like I said before, you know, y'all are the experts in what is needed for people coming home, especially people who've served these extreme sentences for crimes committed as youth. And I think any city would be uh, remiss not to look to your expertise, pay for your expertise to inform whatever programming they're putting in place to assist in the transition coming home. It isn't fair to tell 
folks as they come home that we expect you to succeed, but we're going to set you up to fail. So I think being able to put into place specific or, or make specific recommendations about how they can set you up to succeed is essential. But when you look at the system as a whole, it's not set up for that in any way. Let's look, let's just compare the parole system to any large company in America. Very simple. And anyone can figure this out. It's not like I'm some genius. If I look at my wife works for Salesforce, if she does volunteer work, she gets volunteer hours back from credit back from Salesforce. Why can't we simply in the parole system in in areas like Philadelphia, if Suave gets a call from his agent and he's, hey, I got this thing for you to do. He says, okay, I'm going to log my hours. I get paid $25 or $30 an hour against my fees. When I do this work, I'll send you my timesheet at the end of the week. And it's so simple. I mean, plus they could use some of that grant money then to hire an admin to administrate this program. But I want to roll all the way back because I feel like we moved really fast through a lot of this. And one of the things that you talked about at the start, and we mentioned this in the show previously, but the United States is the only country in the world that sentences its children. And I want to be clear about this, children to life without parole, to death by incarceration. Every other country in the world, including international law all over the world, considers that a violation of human rights. So our system is set up from the start to be punitive, to target, and as our friend Nicole Fleetwood said, viciously target certain groups. So when you've got people walking into prison already with deep trauma, not just trauma from their experience, but trauma in the DNA of their very family, we tend to work backwards on this. And I think one of the questions we need to start asking ourselves and our listeners and the people out there is how do we start to heal the childhood trauma before it gets to a sentence of life without parole, before it gets to individuals being locked up and put into a system that's set up for recidivism, that's set up to continue to make that original victim into an actor over and over again. While no child should be subjected to neglect and physical abuse like Jamarian was, the court understands and appreciates that a troubled upbringing is neither a legal defense to murder nor an excuse for violent behavior. But Jamarian was 12 years old when he committed this killing and it would be naive to conclude that his life experience had nothing to do with his scheme of killing someone so that he would be arrested and executed. The science continues to show fundamental differences between juvenile and adult brains, for example, in parts of the brain involved in behavior control. There is a difference between a 12-year-old and an adult making a horrible decision like this. You know, and what's our responsibility for our communities, you know, especially people who are even somewhat affluent that don't know anything about any of this. I know for me personally, I I have been affected by mass incarceration on every level of my life. I have a cousin that spent time in the federal penitentiary for being involved in biker gangs in the 80s and did, you know, 85% of his time because they offered a 15% parole at that point, which they don't anymore. You do all your time. And I myself have had my own interactions and I have a brother that's still a heroin addict Mm -hmm. out on the street, Mm -hmm. you know? And so how do we start to personalize these stories and get the communities involved in getting to the understanding that this is going to continue until we actually put this, put new policies and really community action Mm -hmm. is what you're talking about Mm -hmm. into effect to create systemic change because people aren't just disappearing into the prison system. A lot of them feel like they've been disappeared from birth, you know, and I think Suave is a great example of this because, you know, he had a rough upbringing and his mom did everything she could to 
make sure the family had food on the table. And yeah. but why do people have to live like that in the richest country in the world? You know, the level of cruelty yeah, I mean, in America is unspeakable. It is, and I I mean I think the prison system is just one example of it. The truth of the matter is that this is about our long history of racism in this country and the systems that have been in place for hundreds and hundreds of years that have oppressed people of color in this country. I mean, I think, you know, if you look at how we came to this practice of sentencing kids to life in prison without the possibility of parole, you can't ignore the direct connection to race and going back to slavery. In the mid-1990s, there was this theory called the super predator theory that, you know, said that there were going to be these godless, fatherless monsters who were going to commit this violent juvenile crime wave. And they put pictures of black and brown kids all over the media to try to warn white communities of these black and brown children who were coming to wreak havoc and in communities of, in their communities and commit violence. And of course, the juvenile crime wave never came to be. <laughs> it was, it, they were wrong. The criminologists were wrong, but the damage was done. The, we saw at that time, state policymakers and at the federal level sort of rush to make it easier to try children as adults at younger and younger ages. Simultaneously, truth and sentencing was happening. These extreme penalties that, that you know, where once you could get good time or parole opportunities were being eliminated. And so the confluence of these laws meant that children uh, at younger and younger ages could be exposed to these extreme sentences. And we saw a huge spike in the use of life without parole in the mid-90s uh, on children. But I think that the theory was really... I mean, I think the question we have to ask is why did that theory take hold the way it did? And the truth is because the narrative was so familiar, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. the, the narrative was one that we've told in this country about black and brown kids since there were black and brown kids in America, right? It, and it's been part of our history of white supremacy and this notion that kids of color are monsters, that they are more dangerous than white kids, that they are older than white kids. We've seen that throughout history in America. And so I think when you talk about the fact that these kids were experiencing trauma, that their families were in these circumstances, that isn't a coincidence. That isn't, that's because these are kids and families that we have dehumanized since they, since the beginning of their history in this country in an effort to maintain a system of white supremacy. And so I think that we can't separate that from the truth of where we are today and how these these sentences came to be and why we are the only country in the world that sentences children to life without parole. When we talk about how to address that, I think we have to tell that truth. I think we have to be able to put into, put these sentencing practices, put this harsh you know, reality in the context of that long history, because those are, they're intrinsically tied. And in order to get out from to the other side of that, we need to talk about the harm of the policies and practices that have been in place that have allowed us to dehumanize these kids and their families since the very beginning. 
And what's needed is for them to be treated humanely. They need resources. They need meaningful education opportunities. They need meaningful employment opportunities, right? Like, it's not rocket science. It's just that there are, you know, these communities that have never had access to that. And it's been rationalized through a narrative of dehumanization. And that continues to be the case when they're in prison and after they come home. And so the campaign actually just today has launched this this initiative called the No Child is Born Bad campaign, where we do this truth telling about the super predator myth. And we call on actors to engage with us as we call for meaningful policy changes as a result to, to try to repair the harm that was caused by the super predator theory and the long history before it. Well, I think one of the things that is really interesting, and I, I try to listen to as much on the other side as I do on my own belief system, because I want to be able to hone my skills and my argument skills, especially, you know, I noticed this sort of uprising of narrative over the last couple of years, especially during Trump, where there's this idea of like, well, it's America, it's even Steven, you got your opportunities, you know, and including coming from people like Candace Owens, who I listen to just to see what what kind of nonsense she's spewing. And the fact of the matter is, when we start shedding light on the deep systematic problems in America that are based almost wholly on race, definitely, you could make an argument for class as well, because there's lots of poor white people that get caught up in the system as well. So you could make that argument. But if you look at the numbers, the numbers don't lie. And Mm -hmm. so when people say back, well, you know, black and brown communities need to take accountability and responsibility for the fact that their dads don't show up and all this other stuff. And, you know, my response is that argument comes after the fact, because now we're shedding light on this very, very deep and systematic issue. You know, and the truth of that, if you really want to dig into that, is every human being that I've ever met is definitely influenced by their environment. You cannot deny that. The more the research goes on and the more that people look into how trauma especially affects your body, it's in your DNA. If you are traumatized as a child, you don't have a father that's there or you don't you have an abusive parent or a drug addict parent or a parent that's engaging in hustling and criminal activity right that's that gets imprinted literally now they're they're finding into your dna and so when you say that these systems come from things like the deep-seated racism in this country and people start saying oh whoa, whoa we're not racist anymore it's like motherfucker this shit we the civil rights act is less than a generation old yeah trauma lasts for hundreds of years generations mm-hmm. so you're telling me that we're the smartest country in the world but we can't figure out that there's no possible way not a possible way in science to remove trauma in one generation you're, you're going to tell me that th- that all things are equal for all communities? It's bullshit. I'm calling bullshit on that. And I'm actually going to throw out the challenge. I would love to have Candace Owens or anyone else that is speaking to the idea that these communities are given a fair shot from the start and that it's all even, Stephen, we've given up racism in the United States and come on the show. Come talk to Suave and I anytime you want. I will anytime. No limits. I don't care. We can talk for four hours if you want to. I will clear every part of my day to have that conversation. Because the not only does the system need to continue to have light shed on it, and when you shed a little light on it, the darkest part of it is going to come out, right? People are going to start like 
making shit up. And so I'm willing to have that conversation anytime because the more light that gets shed on the, the fact that this system has been set up for individuals within certain communities to fail and be then controlled by the same system, the more the bullshit arguments are going to come out. And I'm willing to take those arguments on. And I know Suave is. And so well, let me say this to you, right? I just had a conversation with somebody, the former district attorney in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. He is primarily one of the guys responsible. Steph Williams, I'm putting his name out. Um, he's one of the guys responsible for us being on lifetime parole. You know, he was real adamant about I'm not letting nobody go unless we had supervisions. I mean, he was so and they went for it in the middle of that conversation. He was indicted and ended up in prison. Now he's running around the city talking about I'm looking for a second chance. And I asked him yesterday. I asked him. I said, uh, how does it feel to be on parole? Like, how does it feel? Like, did you got a uh, uh, you're a high-profile case, too. So how does it feel to report every week, give up your urine, ask parole, can I cross the street? Because if you live in a certain part of the city, you got to ask parole for that permission. And he was like, I didn't know. So if you didn't know, why you push for that harsh sentence for us? If you didn't know, you should have... St- I don't have a problem with you doing your job. The problem that I have is you didn't know. So you were just pushing to satisfy your political party. And look at you now. And I even gave him an invitation to come on the show, right? He refused. He said, well, that was then. This is now. I said, no, that's what happened with all politicians when they go to prison. They have a change of heart. I said, the only difference between you now is that we both seen the same parole officer. That's the difference. I love it. I mean, I think the politics of fear and anger, as Brian Stevenson talks about, right? And this idea that, you know, as long as we continue to stoke fear, you can rationalize these policies. And, you know, I I think I had a conversation last night with a group of our ICANN members um, about the super predator theory. And I want to share some of it because I think it, it puts into uh, focus some of the, the problem here. And to your point, Kevin, about the generational trauma and, and and how we need to really be focused in addressing it. You know, we talked about the super predator theory and the impact it had on these ICANN members. All of them, you know, went to prison as children. Many of them were called similar names, you know, godless, fatherless monsters at trial. And they said that they their self-esteem at that time was so low because everything around them was telling them they didn't matter, that they took those labels and it was almost like they had this self-fulfilling prophecy around it. Oh, well, I'm supposed to be a monster because that's what I keep being told and I'm not seeing anything else. So let me keep that going. And so they, they kept thinking about themselves in this way that it was so hard for them to get out of that and, and to get to a place of like, wait, no, I do matter. I do. And so over the course of our conversation last night, I said, so what is it that you feel like you need to heal from this? And they said, there were four or five, all of them said, I want to give back. I want to give back to society. That's how I want to heal. I feel a deep sense of regret, remorse, a debt that I owe because I took someone's life, because I harmed somebody. And I want to give back as a result. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm actually talking about healing from the fact that you were told you didn't matter time and again like everything around you every policy every system and then the super predator theory like i'm talking about what we owe you their minds immediately went to what they owe 
because of this notion that they don't matter, that they don't hold value. And my question was about, no, no, we failed you. You matter and we owe you. <laughs> and so what is it that you need to heal from what we did to you? But that's such a hard thing for them to, to wrap their heads around because that's not ever been what they've been told. And what, what we need, you know, what we do at the campaign and, and as part of ICANN, it's like, what we want you to know is that you matter. You are loved. You are valued because we know that these are folks who've just been told time and again from the time and not, and not by, not by cruel or incompetent families, by society, by systemic racism, by white supremacy, that they don't matter. I think that's what we have to get at in any of these policy solutions, in any of the work that we're doing in the community. It, it, it's, we have to set aside, we, we can't fold to the politics of fear and anger. We are human beings. The people who we have condemned to die in prison are ch in, as children, many of them are some of the best people I know. It is a privilege to be among them. I learn from them constantly. And I always say my kids are, I, I, I have my kids around them. Like it enriches my life, my children's lives to be among them. And yet we have written them off time and again as the super predator, as the offender, as the monster, all these things. And, and for all of us to heal, it's beneficial for all of us to heal from that. We have to name that. We have to recognize that history and we have to focus on that as part of how we move to another place, a place that's restorative, a place that's about meaningful healing, about restoring all that's been lost, really. And it's not just the victims, uh, the quote, people who've been lost through the crimes that these folks have committed. It, it's communities that have been decimated. It's a blessing, for real, for real. It's like, I'm, I don't know, I, I didn't think I could make it this far without them. He is Kent County's youngest killer. Five years later, he's opening up for the first time. Jamari and Longhorn's story starts with tragedy, but now it's a story of forgiveness. He was just 12 years old when he became Kent County's youngest killer, randomly stabbing nine-year-old Connor Verkirke on a Kentwood playground. Today, he's all grown up, 17 years old. After his court hearing today, he talked with News 8's Ken Kolker about his childhood, about the death, and about the forgiveness he didn't think he deserved. Jamarian Lawhorn was in court today for a regular hearing, an update on his progress toward rehabilitation and freedom, but it turned into so much more. At his first court hearing five years ago, Jamarian Lawhorn wore shackles. Today, at his review hearing, he smiled more than once. The grandmother of his victim sat in the courtroom behind him to support him. I feel like as growing up, this was the love I needed, and this was this love I'm getting now. Lawhorn stabbed Connor Verkirke at random in 2014 with a kitchen knife, believing that responding police would kill him and end what was a miserable childhood. He had been abused by his mom and stepdad. I had no right to kill Connor. I killed him out of anger that I was feeling. And it's only for me. It's like it's time for me to make it right to own up to my mistakes and just give back to the community for what I took. You know what, Jody? I'm glad you said that because me and Kev always talk about that. And I always said that as a child, I was classified mentally retarded with an IQ of a 56. And then in my household, in the Latino culture especially, there's always like, you're never going to be nothing. You're going to be like your daddy. 
Um, and I believe them labels. I really believe them labels. And even while I was in prison, I believe them labels. And it's dangerous because I tell people, when you tell a child they're never gonna be nothing, they act out. Mm-hmm. And they acting out because they never gonna be nothing. So what does it matter if I hurt somebody? It don't matter, I'm never gonna be nothing. I'm destined to be in jail. And it was only when I met my friend Maria, everybody knows that. I was told like, yo, you could be somebody. Even if you in jail, you could be somebody. Mm-hmm. And I think we as a society and the household, we need to get out that that label that we put on our kids and stop telling our kids, you're gonna be like, I don't wanna be like my daddy. If you listen to my podcast and, and, and my story, I don't wanna be like my dad, period. So to tell me that was almost like saying, you wanna do X, Y, Z. And, and it was almost like you expected me to do certain things, which occurred. You know, that label became true. And I always tell people like, and that's why I'm not ashamed to tell people, this is where I come from. This is the label that I was given. That's not the label that I wear today. That was just a label. But when I was coming up, that was my life. Yeah, I believed that I would never learn how to read. Yet I went to prison, graduated from Villanova with a bachelor's degree. And, and it's like, I'm either a genius with a 56 IQ or all these doctors and school systems gave me these labels were wrong. Yeah. I don't know because according to the statistics, um, uh, IQs don't vary. So I tell people like, what went wrong here? And as I read my psychiatrist papers when I was a kid, I'm like, wow, this is what we really do to our kids? Like from since I was 10, I was told this is your destiny. And I believe that. And so I'm glad you brought that out because a lot of parents, even if they're single parents, we need to stop traumatizing our kids with you never going to be nothing because that's not so. That's right. I mean, and we white folks need to own our responsibility in handing out those labels and benefiting from those labels, right? Like we need to own that. I mean, I think that's really what is going to, I think that's the harder part, frankly, is that, you know, white folks need to wake up and recognize our role in this. We cannot blame folks for taking children for taking those labels when we're benefiting and we're throwing them out there through the politics of fear and anger, right? Through the super predator myth. That is something that we as white folks have to reckon with. We have to, and we have to think about, you know, what are we now doing? What responsibility do we have as a result in order to fixing, to repairing the harm, to bringing about meaningful policy change and to undoing the harm of those labels, or at least, you know, working sort of going forward to 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 give back and, and we're the ones who should be giving back <laughs> right not not I mean I think you know it speaks to the character the folks who come home who are so devoted to to giving back and and, and living out these eternal apologies to their survivors and to their victims but boy we white folks have a lot of work to do and a, a real responsibility to be creating using our power to create the change that's necessary to to bring about meaningful healing and restoration for our communities and with that said i, I was up with miss jody and um <laughs> we just want to thank you for this time yeah. i believe that people need to hear this message and sometimes we got to go to the people that's in the trenches doing this work and you are one of them you are 
one of my motivation for doing this work. And I always said it from the beginning that I can't do this work without including my ICANN family because they gave me the tools to stand in front of crowds and talk to people and give the message the way it's supposed to be. Always keeping people, always keeping in mind self-care, like my brother Eddie Ellis said, always mm-hmm. self-care. And we just want people to know that you are in the front line of this issue. And we, Death by Incarceration Podcast, is here to support your mission. Anytime you or your members want to come on our show, you got our numbers and y'all got it. Thank you. Thank you. I, I just want to leave people with this this little tidbit. Same people that are like kind of pushing this narrative of harsh sentences and lifetime parole are probably the same ones that are freaking out over little things like mask mandates. And so when I when I think about people that are having those kind of freakouts, my first response is you've never spent any time in prison because <laughs> you yeah. don't know what it's like to be controlled. Wearing a mask yeah. is not control. Sorry. Yeah. You can yeah. frame it any way you want, but you know, talk to somebody that spent some years in any prison in America and then you can understand what control is. Until then, you know, you can miss me with that argument. But uh, this was an amazing interview, and I really appreciate your time, Jody. Well, thank you for the opportunity, and it's uh, nice to meet you, Kevin, and always wonderful to see you, Suave. Next week is our season finale. We're going to talk to lawyers and experts about life without parole for children and how we can end it. We're going to talk about the state of affairs right now in the United States of America. We really appreciate you listening to our first season. We also want to share that our next season is going to be power packed. It's all about women. The United States has seen a 700% increase in women behind bars in prison in the last 10 years. We're also going to have some amazing bonus content, so get ready. We have a case that will blow your mind. We've got a man that's been in prison since 1968 who went in as a youth and got all of his charges while in prison. He hasn't murdered anyone, and he won't see the light of day for 144 years. Thank you very much for listening to Death by Incarceration Season 1. We can't tell you how much it means to us. Thank you.